Well, good morning, church. I left the cold mountains of Colorado to come to 50-degree weather. I am disappointed. I thought I'd have my shorts, my flip-flops, T-shirts, preach to you in my shorts and my flip-flops. Well, it's a new year and a new decade. So I thought, what should I speak on? So I, I chose a portion of Scripture that I hope will be a theme for this new decade and this new new year. And I think you'll agree with me. Now, we have read Psalm 133 as we began. So we don't need it to read again because we'll go through it word by word starting uh, this morning. But we need to look at the background. Now, I, I've entitled this message. Do you have an outline? Does everyone have an outline or no? I don't know. I've entitled the message, The Goodness, The Beauty, the sacredness, it's a long title, isn't it? And the life-giving power of unity. There's no inspired superscription over this psalm. So we don't know the exact historical occasion. But we do know this. It had to be written sometime after David uh, united a divided nation at civil war. So I'm going to explain the background. I'm going to take quite a bit of time because we have tonight too. This is an amazing story of godly leadership in contrast to poor leadership by Saul. So in our outline here, we have Roman numeral number one. King David unites a divided nation around worship. One, King David's, excuse me, King Saul's spiritual failure and death. Now, if you have your Bible, which you will need, turn to First Chronicles. I know we often do read in Chronicles, but now we're going to. All right, First Chronicles chapter 10, verse 1. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Now go to verse 6. Verse 6. Thus Saul died. He and his three sons and all the house died together. And when all the men of Israel who were in the valley saw that the army had fled, that Saul and his sons were dead. Now, if you have a study Bible, you may want to mark this. If not, listen very carefully. It's very, very sad. And they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. This is the promised land. This is the land that God gave them. And they fled from it. And the Philistines, the arch enemy of Israel, the people of God, they come and move into their homes, drive their cars, wear their clothes. Can you imagine if the Chinese come and they attack us here and all of you run from your beautiful homes here and they move into your house and take your car and your clothes? What a disgrace! This was a failure of catastrophic proportions. It was destructive. The people of God running from the promised land and the enemies moving in, taking over. The next day, verse 8, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they stripped him 
And he took his head and his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines, oh, I don't like this, uh, to carry the good news to the idols, their idols, and to the people. And they put his armor in the temple of their gods and fastened his head in the temple of Dagon. This is a low, low point in Israel's history. Verse 13. So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, and this is a very important statement for the readers of Israel at this time, therefore the Lord put him to death because people thought that David had usurped his throne. No, 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 the writer makes it clear. The Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. So we have this just, just terrible story, a disgraceful story of the children of Israel being chased out of the land, their enemies moving in. The king is killed. The Philistines are rejoicing the good news that he and his sons have been killed. Shortly after this, and in fact, the date is pretty easy to remember, 1010 BC. You can all remember that? 1010 BC. A thousand years before the Lord Jesus Christ. At this time, Saul is dead, the king of Israel is dead, and David is made king of Judah and over Benjamin, the two southern tribes. For seven and a half years, he becomes the king. Let's read that in chapter 11, verse 1. Then all Israel gathered together to David at Hebron, now this is far south in the land of Israel, and said, Behold... You are our bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord your God said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel. You shall be prince over my people Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over all Israel according to the word of Samuel. So now we have this divided nation. I think we can have this up here. We have the ten northern tribes, and they are under the king Ishbosheth. Do not name your sons Ishbosheth. Do not do that. You will be hated forever. Ishbosheth, for two years, is the king of the north of Israel. He is a weak puppet king, and he's finally assassinated. And then for five and a half years, Abner, the general, is de facto king over the ten northern tribes. David, during this seven and a half year period, is king over Judah, and there is conflict and war between uh, these people. These are the people of God. So again, we see it is a very low point in Israel's history. But the elders of Israel, after the death of Saul, realize this is not going to work well, and so finally they come and they make David king of all Israel. That's what we just read. Now, here is the question. Are you ready for the question? Do not go to sleep. 
I can see you. What is David going to do? He's the king of a now united nation, but there is still bad blood. Bad blood. We know that from the Psalms. There were many saying in the family of Saul, friends of Saul, David usurped his throne. David does not deserve this. But the, the scriptures, the writers of scriptures make it clear. God put Saul to death. God made David the king. So, but what is David going to do practically? How does he unite, unite the nation, this divided nation? Well, he's got a couple choices. One is he has a powerful army. Remember David's 33 mighty men, each of them supermen, super type of men. He could take his powerful army, an unusual army, he could march north and bring these 10 tribes under his power, kill anyone who disagrees with him because he's a complete monarch. He could do that. That's probably not going to help with unity. Or another thing he could do, just ignore them. He's got a nice kingdom in the south, in Hebron. He's got all his friends and family around him, probably had some wonderful meals. Just let him go. Let the Philistines have him and be done with him. He could do that. Now, it's what David does that is brilliant and is what I want you to see today, which will have application to us. I want you to see what he does. David unites the nation around the worship of God. A, David establishes a new capital city, Jerusalem. Let's turn to 1 Chronicles 11. 1 Chronicles 11. And verses 4 and 5. And David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, that is Jebus, where the Jebusites were, the inhabitants of the land. And the inhabitants of Jabed said to David, you shall not come in here. This was a fortified, powerful city, an existing city. You're not going to get in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David, which it becomes the city of David. So one of the first acts he does is to make a new capital for Israel. See, Hebron was way in the south, very inconvenient for people in the north. So he moves the capital more central to the nation. And he takes this fortified city. It was a strong city. And, but not only does he take the capital, the Bible tells us that he did a great building project. David was an all-around universal man. He wrote poems. He was a military leader, uh, played an instrument, and he was a great warrior, but he, did you know he was also a builder? And he redoes this, this capital city, Jerusalem. And we'll see what he does and why he does this in a moment. Now, at this time, be in your outline, David seeks to restore the Ark of the Covenant. First Chronicles 13, 3. And let us bring again the Ark of our God to us. For we did not seek it in the days of Saul. First Chronicles 13.3. Now, we're going to start to get a real insight into this man. You know he's called the man after God's own heart, right? Now you're going to see why he was a man after God's heart. Now, when a person becomes the president of a country or a political leader or governor or whatever, usually the first things they do and say 
show their agenda for the rest of their administration. Is that not true? Here's a new king over this nation. What's the first things he does? Well, it shows you an insight into his heart and why he's a man after God's own heart. The first thing he realizes needs to be done is that the Ark of the Covenant needs to be brought to Jerusalem. He's going to put the Ark at the center of the nation. The Ark had been neglected for almost 70 years. It was sitting in someone's house. We'd say today it's sitting in someone's garage. Now, let me just tell you something about the Ark. The Ark was the most sacred object in Israel's worship. In the Ark, in that box, when you took the cover off, was the Law of Moses on the stones, uh, the manna, showing God could provide all those years for Israel, and Aaron's buddy Rod shows he is the legitimate priest. The ark stood for God's presence. That's where the Shekinah glory was. That's where the priest, high priest, once a year, he would go in there and put blood on, on the ark. So the ark stood for the very presence of God. Now, my dear friends, there's a lesson here for all of us. Where's this ark been? It says that during the days of Saul, they neglected the ark. The most sacred object of Israel's worship. Do you know this happens today? This happens throughout human history. Do you remember later in Israel's history, the law of God got lost? Did you ever read that? It's lost. They lost the Bible. And one day it's found in the temple. And Josiah repents and leads the nation in in worship. It's disgraceful. But you know, That's been the history of even the church of Jesus Christ. How many times has the truth or the Bible been lost to the people? We do not have real care for the things of God. Saul was a ruler and king for 40 years, and he didn't care much for the things of God. Instead of getting the ark back in his central place, do you know what Saul did? He built a monument to himself. Watch out for people who build monuments to themselves. He had little care for the things of God. He was not a spiritual leader. And that's why there's such a contrast between Saul and David. Now, what David does, bringing the ark to to the center of the nation, he's going to put God back at the center of the nation. He's going to put worship back in the center of the nation. And that's how he will unite the nation. Is that not brilliant? Incidentally, churches are fighting it out all over. We need to bring the Lord back at the center of our our churches. When we're fighting, we say, where's the Lord? Where's the Lord in this? That we are killing each other and doing terrible things to each other. It's hard to really hate your brother when you're singing praise together, isn't it? Or when you're kneeling down praying together. It's really hard to hate. Because the moment you do that, the Holy Spirit, whack, whack, you goes, you stop that hatred. You stop that unforgiveness. That's why a lot of times when we're fighting, we don't like to pray. Because we know the Lord's going to speak to us in prayer. So anyway, now I want you to notice how he does this. He does it with national participation. Let's open our Bibles to uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 13. David consulted. Now, please watch this in leadership. This is a principle of leadership. 
participation of the people. David consulted with the commander of thousands and of hundreds and every leader. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you and from the Lord our God, let us, now I want you to notice these plurals, let us send abroad to our brothers who remain in all the lands of Israel, as well as to the priests and the Levites in the cities that have pasture lands, that they may be gathered to us. Then let us, I have this marked, all the us is marked, bring again the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. All the assembly agreed to do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of the people. Now, he's king. He's monarch. He's got the army. He doesn't have to ask all these people to do this. He could go and just do it. But that's not good leadership. And what is he trying to ultimately do? Bring a divided people together. So he wants the whole nation, the priests, the commanders, the soldiers, he wants them to own this religious act. He wants them to be a part of it. So he consults with them. That's why in any major decision in church, we don't, the elders don't just make a decision. If they do, they shouldn't. They should call the congregation to pray. They should, let's say you were going to raise money for a new building. Can you imagine the elders say, all right, we need a million dollars tomorrow. We'll pass the offering. You all sit there. What are they talking about? We didn't pray about it. We didn't discuss this together. This is participatory leadership. He wants the nation to own this. He wants the priests, the Levites, the commanders of the ark. He wants them to own this event of moving the ark. Well, over 30,000 people come to move the ark. Now, this brings us to see in our outline, David leads the nation in worship. So all Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with shouting, they're pretty happy, to the sound of the horn, trumpets, and cymbals, and made loud music on harps and lyres. Michael, David's wife, saw the king dancing and celebrating, and they brought in the Ark of God and set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it. Notice, David is not on the sideline waving as they go by. He's not in the back. He is right out front leading in worship. Leading in worship. He's an example of a man who loves the Lord. And he loves to celebrate the Lord and worship the Lord. Look at Psalm 18. Just real quickly. You have to move quickly here because I have to be done by 2 o'clock. Psalm 18, verse 1. And this is just one psalm, but look at this one, what it says about David's heart. Are you with me? Psalm 18, verse 1. I love you, O Lord, my strength. Look at that. I love you, O Lord, my strength. So I have a grandson. He's the cutest little kid. He's the youngest of our 11 grandchildren, but he has hair that it doesn't seem to be combed. It goes, looks like Boris Johnson in England. It just goes all different ways, and he's got a little lisp. He's so cute. He never says thank you to his mother. His mother makes him a delicious meal, never says thank you. Mother gives him beautiful uh, a presence at Christmas, never says thank you. Now, don't get mad at him. He never says thank you. Do you know what he says? I love you, Mom. 
I love you, Mom. That's how he says thank you. I love you, Mom. That's what David says. I love you, Lord. And I think that's why he's a man after God's own heart. He really has an affection for the Lord. And that's why when he became king, he knew what to do. The ark's got to come into the center of the nation if we're ever going to pull this thing off together. So he's leading in worship, which to me, the whole thing is just a a gigantic display of the greatest commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That's what all this is about. A king now who loves God, he even says that, I love you, Lord, and he marks it with worship. Now next, David plans and organizes worship for the nation. Now, I want you to watch this very carefully. David sets up a special tent in Jerusalem for the ark. So the ark is sitting in some, some person's garage, dust all over it. No one's cared for it. It's not been at the center of the late nation. So David takes this new city, a new capital city. It's going to be quite a city. And he, he pitches a temporary tent. He knows that ultimately he needs something more permanent, but it's a temporary tent. And the ark is brought and put in that tent. And it's placed front and center in the city. Everything will revolve around this tent and the ark. Second, David organizes the priests. Now, when we we are dull to spiritual things and we don't really understand spiritual things, it's not long before the priests are in disarray. They're not even being used properly. So, God had set up the priesthood, Levitical priesthood, and so David reorganizes the priests so that each order of priests gets a time to come to Jerusalem and serve as a priest before the tent and to do other things which we'll see develop here. So the priests are now put back to work and they're made to serve in Jerusalem. Now, if you're a a Bible student, there's something I want to point up. It's It's a major shift in the Bible right now. Major shift. Up until this time, it was the high priest and the priest that led in worship. It will be at this point that Israel's king will be the one to lead in worship, which prepares us for the Lord Jesus Christ. So David is now reconstructing the worship of Israel. So it is a key moment in all of Israel's history when the king becomes now the leader of worship. And David loved worship. He writes psalms. He writes poems to lead the nation in worship. Third, David organizes the Levitical choir. I think some of them were here this morning. (laughs) Now, another brilliant strategy. David knows it's not all just cognitive, but the soul, the emotions have to be moved. And so he writes beautiful songs. He writes poems. And he's a a person uh, of musical ability. And so he sets up leaders who are skilled in music over the nation. He sets up musicians. He sends up the Levitical choir to sing praise to God. To move God's people to worship. Now, we were encouraged this morning to sing. So I'm going to encourage you, when you come together as the people of God, the Holy Spirit is here. He is in our presence. We are the temple of God. We are the dwelling place of God. Look at Ephesians 2, the last verse. 
God is dwelling here. You're in an important place right now, a sacred place. When it's time to sing, do not be shuffling around and looking at your calendar for next week or figuring out in your mind, where are we going to eat lunch? We've got to get there quickly before all those other church people get there. Uh, concentrate on singing congregationally. Now, I've been in many churches. You can tell. One time I was in a, in a rather big church, choir, big, big orchestra, everything. I'm at the back, and I'm looking around. Very few people were even singing. They were letting the people up front sing. They were just moving all around. That's not what God wants. You are to sing. Congregation is to sing. Put down your Bible, put down your things, and concentrate on the singing because you are worshiping. The Lord is in the center here. So when you come the next time, come to worship. And I know the leaders will be up here worshiping. The elders will be worshiping. The deacons will be worshiping. Just like David was right out front leading the celebration to God. I find it interesting that when David becomes king, he knows what to do. I find that interesting. He knows exactly what to do. You know, many leaders, they flounder all around. What do we do? Let's try this. Let's try that. He does not do that. Immediately, he gets a new city. Immediately, he brings the ark. He gets the whole nation organized. And within a short time, this nation is praising God and worshiping. We don't hear about any fighting. He knows what to do. And you know why he knows what to do? He must have been a man who knew that Old Testament. Whether when he was out with the sheep, he was going through the things of God, rehearsing in his mind all the stories he had heard as a young Jewish boy, he knew what to do because he knew the word of the Lord. He knew what the Pentateuch said, and he just did it. It's that simple. The ark needs to come here. No big question, no doubt. All right, four, David established effective, meaningful worship for the nation. Then he appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank, to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. My dear friends, what you are looking at here is a massive revival, a spiritual revival. You are looking at reformation at its best. This city is buzzing with priests. It's buzzing with singing. It's an unusual city. There aren't soldiers marching up and down the street, people being arrested by the secret police. No, there's priests there. There's sacrifices there. There's teaching. In other places we know, teaching is going on. The law is being taught. There's a choir there and musicians there, and they're singing. The whole city is buzzing with priests and worship and celebration. This is a different kind of city. And this is what God actually wanted in the end for Israel to be the light to the nation. And now it would be a light to the nation. As the nations come, they go, what kind of city is this? It's a worshiping city. It's a singing city. It's a teaching city. And it's full of joy. And you know why? Because now God's at the center of the nation. His word is at the center of the nation, being taught by the priests. His songs are at the center of the nation. That's how he united the nation. Is that incredible? Maybe in our church fights, we'd really like to try this, this different. We're all fighting. Let's have an evening of singing and praying. 
put away our little petty, petty. Most church vices are very petty, you know. It was as disgraceful as Israel was disgraceful. This is an exciting moment in Israel's history. Joy, victory, God is at the center. So, just a few years before, they're killing each other. A few years before, the Philistines had kicked all the Israelites in the north out of their house. By the way, David will kick them out eventually with his powerful army and bring the nation totally together. This is an amazing story. Now, with that as our background, we're doing pretty good. I think I can be done by 2 o'clock. Let's look at our next major point. King David extols the goodness and the beauty of unity. And that brings us to Psalm 133. Now, if you want to stay home and see television tonight, that's your business. It's not my business. But we're going to go through this psalm carefully tonight. I'll get started right now. Let's look at this psalm, the structure of the psalm. The structure of the psalm is very simple. Verse 1 is the main theme. Verse one. It says, behold, how good and pleasant when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. Now, after he lived during the civil strife, he lived during that civil strife. He saw uh, the, the destruction of division. He saw it firsthand. He felt it. And so maybe in the city of Jerusalem, maybe from his home or some part of the city, it was a a mountain city, Zion, the mountain of Zion, he looks out and he sees thousands and thousands of Israelites coming for Passover. Uh, I'm just making this up. Uh, Coming to worship, and he goes, oh, how good it is. How beautiful it is when the brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. It's so much better than killing one another, hating one another plotting against one another, suspicion of one another. All those things happen in a church when there's a church fight. Everyone's suspicious of everyone. and You say anything, oh, yes, everything's misrepresented. You come to church to, with armor on. All right, so the structure of the psalm is very easy. It begins with the main theme in verse 1, and then there's two illustrations, two brilliant illustrations. Now, all good teachers know the importance of illustrating. Jesus was a master illustrator. So, He gives his main theme, and then he illustrates. So let's go back now, and we'll look at the theme of the psalm, the theme, the goodness and the beauty of unity. Now, it's two key words. The first word is good. Unity is good. That word good means intrinsically valuable. It's the inward quality of excellence and goodness. The second word is pleasant. Different translations may say something different. This is the outward, the beauty, the attractiveness, the appearance. It's a wonderful thing to see people in unity. It's a wonderful thing. Now, the psalm begins with a trumpet blast. Bad trumpet playing. Eight years of trumpet, my dad would laugh at me. I gave it up. Had no musical talent. I got over it, though. A trumpet blast. Behold, look, pause, gaze, study, ruminate. Whenever you see unity, behold it. Look at it. Spurgeon said, it's a wonder seldom seen. Therefore, behold it. When you see people in unity, ask, how did you achieve this? We live in a world of division and war. Unless you don't read the newspaper or look at the news. 
When you see a family at peace, study that family. So when we had four little daughters, when they were just little, there was a family in the church, six children, and the children were all involved in the church, united family. We often go there to eat. So I took the dad out, and I said to dad, I said, dad, tell me your secrets to fatherhood and how you achieve this. See, I was beholding unity. I wanted to know what this dad did to have a united home. When you see a church in harmony, find out, how did you achieve this? I can tell you how they'll achieve it. There's only one way that they follow the Lord Jesus' teaching on brotherhood and sisterhood, humility and love and forgiveness. That's the only way we achieve unity is that we obey the Lord's virtues that he has given to us. When you see a nation at rest, ask, what are the principles that guided this nation? Now, I know, I know you're all going to say, yeah, we're all divided in that. Yes, we are divided. But you have to look at that in comparison to other countries where they kill one another and have tanks running up and down the street, secret police killing, murdering, uh, corrupt courts. We don't have that. Thanks be to Jesus. We, we're meeting here safely. Listen, I know brothers in Russia and Cuba right now, there will be secret people in here. And, and people like Lance will be watched very carefully. I'm talking to people in a certain country right now, and they've, they've cut off our email, and I wouldn't even try to call. It's too dangerous. We don't have that. How is it that this nation's had such unity compared to others? Maybe now it's a little less than other times. Because there were principles. At the beginning of this nation, one of the principles were we're a nation of law. We're a nation that prizes truth. The more we lose that, the more we'll... Be brought under heavy-handed leadership. So, when you see unity, ask, how did they achieve it? That's what he's saying here. Now, let's look at the first illustration. We're only going to get a little bit about the first illustration. So, he now says unity is a good thing, it's a beautiful thing. He wants to illustrate. So, in verse 2, he says this. Unity is like, get that? It's like, illustration the precious oil on the head running down the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robe. Isn't that a great illustration? Do you, do you think that's a great illustration? You don't even know what he said, do you? That's why they invited me here. Did you understand the illustration? No. Tell the truth. You're in the house of God. No. Okay. Actually, it's a brilliant illustration. The problem is we don't know our Old Testament's that good. Unity is like the holy oil upon the head. So, David is going back into the Old Testament history. He's going back to that moment when the high priest and his sons are all in their brand new priestly garments. Moses is there. The nation is there. Moses takes this oil and he pours it on Aaron's head. Leviticus chapter 8, verse 12. Then he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. And at that moment, the nation is totally united. That beautiful perfume oil goes up into the air, the smell, fragrance. And at that moment, the whole nation is in unity. But it's even more than that. It's like the holy oil. Now, this oil is no ordinary perfumed oil. It is made strictly according to God's manufacturing guidelines. We're actually told what the guidelines are in Exodus 30. I won't go through this now. I have it right here. Or look at Exodus 30, 23. So, God gave the formula for this holy 
oil. This oil can only be used on the tabernacle, the utensils, and the high priest or, or later a king. You could not use this perfume oil for any common reason or profane reason. In fact, if you use this oil for anything common, you were cursed. You were cut off from the children of Israel. So dads, husbands, Christmas, it's only 11 months away. Christmas, you cannot buy this perfume oil for your, for your wife. I'm sorry, you cannot. Buy something else, but you cannot. It's a holy oil. It's a sacred oil, and it can only be used for certain events and objects. Now, let me give you three applications of this holy oil. There's more, but I'll give you three. Number one, number one, unity is holy. Unity is like the holy oil. It's special, it's unique, it's sacred, it's nothing common. Thus, it must be guarded and protected. Spurgeon wrote these words, What a sacred thing must brotherly love be when it can be likened to an oil which must never be poured on any man but on the Lord's high priest alone. That is the first lesson of the holy oil. Unity is like that special oil that Moses used to anoint the priest and the, and the tabernacle. Our unity is as special and unique as that holy oil. That's what he's saying. You, disunity, look at disunity. Disunity is unholy. It's destructive. Satan is the sower of discord. He's a master at causing division. In um, Proverbs 6, we have the seven deadly sins. I, I, I wonder how many of us know the last of the seven deadly sins. There are six things which the Lord hates, yea, seven which are an abomination to him. The last, the first is pride. The last is one who spreads strife among the brothers. That's one of the seven deadly sins. A person who generates strife among believers. And don't go looking around right now at other people or poking people and say, oh, brother so-and-so better listen to this. I hope he's probably asleep. No, look at yourself because any one of us can cause dissension in the church. Elders can cause dissension in the church. Deacons can cause dissension. Our sisters can cause dissension in the church. Actually, it's sort of natural, really. If you go through the Old Testament, you have the de devil sowing discord right from the very start. What happens between Cain and Abel? Cain kills, this is right at the beginning of the dawn of human civilization. Cain kills Abel, and we've been killing each other ever since. Jacob and Esau, this is almost humorous. They're in the womb of their mother fighting for prominence to get out first. First come, first serve, that kind of thing. David and Saul, the madness of David trying, uh, Saul trying, madness of Saul trying to kill David. And then the terrible, terrible, terrible story of Joseph and his brothers throwing him in a pit trying to kill him. The brothers, and then lie, 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 lie for decades or a long time. Israel divided into the north and the south. The New Testament, you see every single church in the New Testament had some form of strife. And the Corinthians particularly, it almost seemed as if they wanted nothing to do with Paul any, any longer. My dear brothers and sisters, we're creatures of war. 
When Time Magazine did its 60th anniversary issue, it used one word to describe 60 years. Well, I would have guessed it would be technology or biology. The one word they used was warfare. And they showed the uh, over 125 million people senselessly killed in the 20th century by the century of the dictators. And we thought maybe we're over with that again. My friends, all over the world, dictators are rising again, country after country. We don't learn. That's obvious. We're fighters. We're warriors. And it comes right into the church. So the next time you're tempted to spread strife, remember this. Unity is like the holy oil. It's that sacred. It's that holy. It's that special. Unity is like the holy oil. So the next time you pick up the phone and you talk about another brother and sister, will you just remember this? I hope I strike you good. Unity is as sacred as the holy oil. And right now, with my big mouth, I may be smashing that unity. And I can do it. You can do it. My wife can do it. My children can do it. If we're not aware, the next time you make accusations against another person and you don't know all the facts, remember this, unity is a holy thing. I've worked all my life in a church and I have seen it in our own church. I've seen it several times when, when disunity breaks out and, and that gossip mill and the rumor mill and the tail bearing goes on, you can't get a hold of it and all kinds of rumors are being spread around. I have seen it firsthand, tried to get control of it, particularly sometimes when a divorce, you have two major families and there's a divorce, everyone lines up on this side, they line up on this side, they get their cannons over here, the cannons over here, and all kinds of rumors are going around the church, most of them half-truths, misrepresented of the truth, you can't even get a hold of it. It's so, it happens so fast sometimes. And those phone lines light up. Most of the time, most of the time, when we make accusations against others or judgments against others, we do not have all the truth. I guarantee you that. I have learned through hard lessons. When I hear something, I don't care if my wife tells me it, something about another believer, how bad they are and what they've done, I do not believe until I go to that believer. You heard about the man walking down the street. He's walking down the street. And he sees his other brother. He says, huh, I heard you're dead. Well, you can see I'm alive. Yes, but I heard it on reliable information. (laughs) There is no reliable information unless you go to the person. Okay? First of all, be very careful of accusations until you have let the other person speak first. When you pass on misinformation to other people, remember, much of that may be false. You think it's right, but it may be false because you haven't checked it out. It takes a lot of work to check it out. You may be causing disunity, or you will cause hard feelings against brothers and sisters. And I can tell you from much, much, much experience, when these things happen, it takes a long time for people to let go of the hurts and the accusations and the things they've heard about themselves, especially in these very difficult situations. Sometimes years, people are hurt, deeply, deeply hurt by rumors about them. I know what I'm talking about. And especially watch for anger. 
anger. When that anger gets out of control and you're self-justifying and, 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 and you don't care what you say because you're angry. Or here's the worst one. I've been hurt. And when people get their feelings hurt, they're the most dangerous because they think I've been hurt. I can lie. I can divide the brethren. I can, I can do whatever I want. I, I'm going to write a book someday called I've Been Hurt. It'll be a big seller. I know that. <laughs> You'll probably see me on the New York Times cover. I've been hurt. I have seen the destructive things that hurt people. They're like wounded animals. And they are going to strike back. And they don't care about ethics or biblical principles. They've been hurt. They're going to hurt. We've all been hurt. Wake up. We've all been hurt by other people. We've all been hurt by rumors or misunderstandings or cruel things people have said to us. Much of it in anger, much of it in ignorance. Just remember this one thing. Unity is like the holy oil upon the head of the priest. That's how sacred it is. So, When Hudson Taylor stepped down from the China Inland Mission, after starting the China Inland Mission, he was in his mid-70s, he was completely wiped out physically. In fact, he said he was so tired he couldn't pray, but he said, I can trust, I can trust. Before he died, he appointed, it's a very, very interesting story, a younger man, a much younger man named D.E. Hose to lead the China Inland Mission. And... It proved the right choice because if you've ever read the, the biography, D.E. Host, A Prince with God, what, what an unusual man. What a, what a great man of God. So D.E. Host was older, and he was in England, and he's at a conference. And at the conference, they put, you know, speakers up and ask questions. They asked him, what this, by this time, there's almost 1,500 missionaries in the interior of China, which wasn't supposed to happen. They asked him, what's one of the biggest problems you have in the mission? He said, the biggest problem we have in our mission is tail-bearing. Missionaries love to tell stories about other missionaries. And as D.E.O. said, most of it is not true. Or it's half true. They're distorted truths. Tail-bearing. We love it in the church. You have to discipline your mind when you hear things about people say, Have you gone to that person? Let's just go to them. Because we can't get a reliable report. And when you go, never start with an accusation. Always start with, I heard this. I would like to hear from you. No one, you don't like people to make accusations against you that aren't true. Don't do it to others. Never start with an accusation. That immediately separates you. You go and say, I've heard this. Why don't you straighten this out? I remember we had started this little church in the, the Denver University area, and it was going on for about five years. And someone calls me and says, Alex, you've got to get over there. I said, why? They're all speaking in tongues. Well, I know these people. Speaking in tongues? No, th- Alex, I know this. Were you there? No, but uh, reliable information. <laughs> so I call up one of the brothers there I know very, very well. I said, uh, Bruce, uh, I hear you guys are letting loose here. <laughs> speaking in tongues. Well, anyway, he just laughed his head off. He said, what are you talking about? Well, that's how I felt. What are we talking Where do these things come from? So we had, at one time in, in Denver, 
one of the largest Youth for Christ movements in the, in the United States. They had a main office. They were very strong in all the high schools. Uh, it was a, a big, big ministry uh, back in the 70s, very big ministry. So anyway, there's about 100 men at the Youth for Christ headquarters, one of them being one of our fellow elders. A man stands up in the meeting giving a prayer request. And the prayer request is, please pray for Alex and Marilyn Strauch. They have separated. Everyone goes, well, thank the Lord, one of my fellow elders was there. Now, we didn't have cell phones in those days, believe it or not. So he said, that doesn't sound right to me. So he gets to a phone, and he calls me. He says, Alex, I'm here at Youth for Christ. There's over 100 people here, and they said you and Marilyn are separated. Is there any truth to that? I said, let me ask Marilyn. Marilyn, have we separated? She said, not yet. <laughs> I, said, I said, Drew, Drew, find out where that is coming. There's probably people today who think I'm separated from my wife. Maybe she's my third wife. I don't know. So anyway, listen, this is what I wanted to make the point. Drew and I tried to track that down. We could never track that rumor down. Where did that come from? Well, the person heard it from this person, heard it from that person. But to stand up publicly in a meeting and make that announcement without checking with us, that happens. That happens. And don't be a part of that because unity is like the holy oil upon the head. Now, we have a lot more to go through in this psalm, and it gets better. So your choice about tonight. Come here and be entertained or stay home and be bored all evening. Now, let me close with this. Through this wonderful change in Israel, with Israel being Jerusalem now, being the center of Israel and a city of worship, a whole, really a holy city, not like it's today, it's a bloody city, a holy city with the Lord right at the center, worship at the center. It was to be a light to the nations. When a local church is in unity and we really are loving one another and caring for one another, we have the joy of the Lord here and we're generous with one another and we're reaching out, We become like Jerusalem. That will be the point. From Jerusalem goes out the message, life forevermore. From this congregation goes out the message of eternal life. No one else has the message. The the university doesn't have a message of eternal life. The government doesn't have a message of eternal life. Only you have a message of eternal life. But if you're fighting it out and you're divided, that message has no power. And you're not even going to say anything. But when you're united and you're together, you have power. You have unity. And you become the verifying data of the message. So if you're here this morning, you're new. You do not know Jesus Christ as God, as man, and as the Savior. I want you, please, to come up and talk to me after. Because we have a message. Life forevermore. Sins forgiven eternal life through the blood of Jesus upon the cross. He came to seek and save what was lost. He loves to save men and women. Let's close in prayer. Lord, Father, we just thank you for this powerful, powerful psalm. And may it be a theme for us for the year 2020. May it um, determine our homes and our businesses and our church and our relationships. May we understand that unity is like the holy oil on the head of the high priest and that 
It's, it's not a common thing or a, um, a mundane thing. It's a precious thing and special. And the, the odor, the, the smell of that perfume oil is of great delight to you. Help each and every one of us here to be as Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. We ask these things in the very powerful name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.